This morning's scripture reading is Esther chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 415. Esther 9, 1 through 5. Now in the twelfth month, which is a month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on all those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors And the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer together. Father, thank you that you have given us the gift of your word, a revelation of who you are and how you're at work in this world that you have created. And I pray that you'd give us grace this morning to understand it, to see Jesus in it, and to believe it. Father, would you give us faith that we'd put these words into action. We confess this morning that we need your help, and so we ask you to be with us, to be very present during the preaching of your word. We pray that you would stir up our hearts and move in our minds and be a strong help to us this morning. We give this to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, how do you feel about war? That may seem like a Silly question. Who's excited about war? Zero out of ten dentists recommend war. So I doubt you're pleased that war exists. But can you think of war causes that are worth fighting for? Can you think of any of those? There were many in December of 1941 that were glad when the U.S. entered World War II. Not because they were giddy about war, but because Hitler's wickedness had become patently clear. His efforts were evil, and he had become a a real enemy to many. And fighting against him was a cause worth sacrificing for. It was a cause worth engaging in. And so many, including the U.S., decided that ignoring that conflict wasn't okay. Rather, they deemed it critical to enter into combat. This is why we sometimes use war language in a positive way. We talk about the war on drugs, or the war on crime, or maybe you're waging war on moles in your yard, or squirrels in your attic, or termites in your wood, or some other evil creature bent on destruction and invasion. We support war when we identify something evil, and we say that's worth combating. When you call something wicked, when you can call something destructive and invasive, you war against it. Which, to be clear, doesn't mean you love war. 
but it does mean that you've identified a cause worth fighting for. Well, in Esther 9 and 10, our text for this morning, there's a great day of battle. And as we look at these chapters together, ask yourself these questions. What evil does the Bible hold forth that should stir us up to combat? What cause in the Christian life is worth fighting for? And what's the nature of that fight? What does war and battle look like for the person following after the Lord Jesus Christ? So turn to Esther 9 if you haven't already, and let's look at the beginning of the chapter together. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find it on page 415. Nick just read the first five verses a few minutes ago. In verse 1, we heard an overarching statement about the 13th day and the 12th month. This is the date of that great day that has been looming throughout the book of Esther. This is the date that was given when wicked Haman cast lots for the destruction of the Jews. Do you remember that? Back in chapter 3, verse 7, Haman cast purr. These were like dice, and they were thrown to determine the very month and day that the Jews would be annihilated. This is how evil Haman set in motion the central conflict in the book of Esther. And when the lots were cast, the date was determined. The 13th day of the 12th month, which we now know is the month of Adar. And since the edict was codified as law in chapter 3, for the annihilation of the Jews, the conflict has raged, and the coming day of destruction has been a threat. So now in chapter 9, verse 1, the day has arrived. It's here. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, there's the edict of destruction, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. This ominous day is introduced in verse 1 as a wonderful day of reversal. It's a day in which the edict put in place by Mordecai triumphs over Haman's evil decree. It says the reverse occurred. What a great statement that is. The Jews, backed by Mordecai's new law, which was described back in chapter 8, verse 11, now defend themselves against their enemies, against those who hated him. And they destroy all who seek their harm. And it says in verse 2 that no one could stand against them. And why is that? Why were the Jews so victorious? Especially considering how great the peril was back in chapters 3 and 4 when Haman's edict was issued. The Jews were scared to death. They were mourning and wailing and lamenting. So so what has changed? Why the swift and pervasive victory? Well, look at verses 3 through 5. All the officials, the satraps, the governors, even the local royal agents are helping the Jews. Not only do the officials receive and publish the new edict, but they also assist the Jews, it says. They serve the Jewish cause as the Jews fight to defend themselves. And why do they do this? Why do they do this? Because the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. Do you see that in verse 3? Here's the real reason for the Jewish success. Mordecai has been exalted. He was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. He grew more and more powerful. 
Haman's long gone, and now Mordecai is the number two man. He's at the, the right hand of King Ahasuerus. Remember how chapter 8 ended? Verse 15, Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes, and he wore the golden crown. And the city of Susa shouted, and they rejoiced, All hail Mordecai! May he live forever! And fear of the Jews fell on the people throughout all the provinces, even such that some of them declared themselves to be Jews. Do you remember that? So Mordecai has been greatly exalted, and as a result, the Jews are victorious on the day of battle. Look at the details with me as we continue in verse 6. Esther 9, verse 6. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha, and Delphon, and Espatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Edaratha, and Parmashta, and Erisai, and Eridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So in these verses, the battle is described in detail. In Susa, where the king and Mordecai themselves live and rule, 500 men are killed, and the 10 sons of Haman are included in that defeat. By the way, I was very tempted to add verses 6, 7, and 8 to Nick's scripture reading, but I decided to be merciful. Those names are tricky, so Nick, you owe me one. (laughs) Then Esther requests a second day of battle for Susa, and another 300 men are killed. And in the meantime, 75,000 enemies are killed throughout the empire. Even the king in verse 12 is rather impressed with the victory. Now, I know that as we consider these verses, you have a few questions. Why does Esther Esther ask for a second day of slaughter? Is she just bloodthirsty? A little power trip for the queen? Why are the sons of Haman singled out and then publicly displayed on gallows? And why did the narrator note three times that the Jews laid no hands on the plunder? Did you hear that repeated? 
The answers to these questions are all bound up in the nature of the battle that's at hand here. Remember, this isn't just some ancient Near Eastern political skirmish. The Bible isn't interested in just raw history. The the story here has historical and theological significance. Yes, it's a battle between two men of ancient power, Haman and Mordecai. But it's also a battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Don't forget Genesis 3.15. We've read this before. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The contest between Haman and Mordecai is one of age-old enmity. Haman is the seed of the serpent and Mordecai is the seed of the woman. We talked about this when we were back in chapter 3. This is why Haman's called the Agagite. He's an age-old enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai is a Benjaminite. And this conflict is meant to recall, if you remember, the battle back in 1 Samuel 15 between King Saul and Agag, king of the Amalekites. So there's enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. King Agag, back in 1 Samuel 15, and Saul the Benjaminite. Haman, the Agagite here in Esther, and Mordecai, the Benjaminite. So in chapter 9, here's what's going on. Mordecai, Esther, and the Jewish people are carrying out God's triumph over the seed of the serpent. And they're making certain to succeed where King Saul had failed. They completely destroy the house of Haman and make him a public spectacle. Triumph over the leading enemy is openly displayed. And they secure complete destruction of all the enemy. I think that's why Esther requests a second day. The annihilation must be comprehensive. It must be complete. All those who hate the Jews and who seek their harm and who come against them as enemies must be destroyed. No agags left this time. And no plunder will be kept back as it was in 1 Samuel 15. In fact, they don't even go near it. This battle is only about defeating the enemy. That's it. Just defeating the enemy. So the enemies of God's people are thoroughly and entirely overcome. The victory over the seed of the serpent is exhaustive. He's utterly vanquished. And the result is celebration. For the Jews, this became a day of celebration. You begin to see that in verse 17. They rested and enjoyed feasting and enjoyed gladness. And in verse 19, it's, it's commemorated as a holiday, a day to send gifts of food to one another. And you can see the explanation for an irregularity in the Feast of Purim. The rural villagers celebrate on the 14th of Adar because they only fought for one day. But the city folk, by implication, celebrate on the 15th of Adar due to two days of fighting in the city of Susa. Well, let's look at the formal implementation of this celebration in the remaining verses of chapter 9. So pick back up with me, starting in verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, 
that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they faced in this matter, and of what it had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. So Mordecai observes all this celebrating, and he records it, puts it into writing. And he institutes an annual festival, a festival of feasting and gladness and gift-giving. And the Jews accept it. They like the idea. And to remember the reversal of fortunes that they enjoyed in order to recall the divine twist that had occurred. I like verse 25. It says, it returned on Haman's own head. Because of all this, the commemoration is called the Feast of Purim. And this recalls the casting of lots that I've already mentioned back in chapter 3, verse 7. The irony is very sweet, isn't it? Haman seeks pagan counsel for the destruction of God's people. But the Lord determines the lot. He determines the day. And the day becomes a day of destruction, not for the Jews, but for their enemies. For the Jews, it's a great day, a day of victory and a day of celebration. Put that purr in your pipe, Haman, and smoke it. The Jews, under Mordecai's direction, pledged to celebrate the Peace of Purim forever. They firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, it says in verse 27. In verse 28, these days of celebration should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, in every province, in every city. And they should never fall into disuse. The commemoration must never cease. And Esther confirms the practice of Purim. She approves this message. And then we move to chapter 10, the final chapter, and only three verses. So let's read those verses together in chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with a multitude of his brothers. 
For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This little chapter is all about Mordecai's exaltation. Do you see how these verses extol him? The first verse restates the greatness and and the vastness of the king's realm. He has full tax-imposing control from the land all the way to the distant sea. Which is another way of saying that his kingdom extended across really the whole known earth. All the way to those faraway islands. Even there, he was able to impose his tax. And the king's reign was marked by acts of power and might, it says. And this greatness, the greatness of King Ahasuerus, is meant to exalt Mordecai. Because Ahasuerus exalted him and advanced him. He bestowed on Mordecai that high honor. And Mordecai's acclaim was written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia. This is the same language used of the Jewish kings who ruled over Judah and Israel. So Mordecai really is likened to a great king of Israel, ruling over the whole known world. And he's the one who immediately receives power and honor and might from the Persian king. He's his right-hand man, the second in command, just like Joseph was over Egypt at Pharaoh's right hand. And verse 4 closes by saying that he was great among the Jews, great among his people. He was popular with a multitude of his brothers, esteemed among his kin, because he sought the welfare of his people. He worked for their good. He was concerned about their good. He won their prosperity. He won their success. And he spoke peace to all the people. He led his people into triumph, into safety and rest and security. He led them into victory and celebration where there could be feasting and gift giving and joy and gladness. So the book closes with Mordecai lifted up, exalted, praised, honored. This day, the the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, turns out to be quite a day for the Jews, doesn't it? It's a day of victory. It's a day of celebration, and it's a day of exaltation where Mordecai is high and lifted up. This once ominous day has turned into a great day of wonders for the Jews. Now what I'd really like you to see is how this text points to your great day of wonders. And to do that, you need to see how this text speaks of Jesus Christ. Chapters 9 and 10 here in Esther are all about Him. They're all about Jesus. The victory that was won in Esther chapter 9 is the victory of Jesus Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, died and rose again, He authored a great reversal for His people. The death sentence that was against them, the law that had condemned them to death, was overturned by a new law, a law of life and liberty. Because of your sin, brother and sister, you were condemned. You were enslaved. You were held captive to the law of sin that dwelt in your members. You were sold under sin, in bondage under the law, guilty and deserving the punishment of death. But because of Jesus Christ, there was a great turning of the tables. You experienced that reversal, didn't you, brother and sister? For the law of spirit of life that set you free in Jesus Christ set you... It overturned the law of sin and death. You've been given life 
instead of death. Justification and righteousness instead of condemnation. And Jesus won this victory for you through his death on the cross. He atoned for sin. He absorbed God's wrath. He took your punishment. And he stood in your place. God did in Jesus what the old law couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and forced sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. This is your victory, church, by faith. And it was accomplished because Jesus triumphed over his enemies at the cross. It was there that he crushed Satan's head. Satan was bound and and thrown down and defeated at the cross. And his angels were thrown down with him. Colossians 2.13 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. That's reversal. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And listen to this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. At the cross, God crushed the serpent's head. He crushed that Haman-like wicked adversary of our souls. And then He disarmed all evil rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. It's as if He hung them on gallows as a public spectacle for all to see. And this is to win your victory, brother and sister. And there is a day coming when Christ's victory will be complete and thorough and exhaustive. That day is fast approaching. A day is coming when Jesus will completely and utterly destroy all of God's enemies. He will defy all the flannel graph scenes of serenity that exist throughout the world. Turn with me for a moment to the book of Revelation. Let's go to Revelation chapter 19. It's on page 1039, if you're still using a pew Bible. We're going to start in verse 11. That's on page 1040. Listen as I read Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. That dear friends, is the Lord Jesus Christ in His glory. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems, and He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. That very well may be you, dear saints. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come! Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured 
And with it the false prophet who its presence had done great signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. There's Jesus. Jesus putting down his enemies. It's a graphic scene. Full of judgment. Full of defeat. Wickedness and rebellion and and pride against God. All put down. And God's enemies completely destroyed. Completely destroyed. Look ahead to chapter 20, verse 7. Keep reading with me. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The beast and the false prophet will be thrown into the lake of fire. The devil, thrown into the lake of fire. Death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. And those not found in the book of life will be thrown into the fire. They're described in chapter 21, verse 8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. No enemy will be left undefeated. The devil and all his angels will be defeated. All those who remain in rebellion against God and refuse to submit to Jesus Christ, they will be defeated. Death itself will be swallowed up in victory. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm wondering, did you have any trouble as we read Esther 9 with the language of war. The Jews annihilate and kill and destroy all their enemies. They don't spare even one. Esther even requests a second day to assure that they kill every enemy and publicly expose them. Do you struggle with that? Is it difficult for you to read when Israel is instructed to wipe out their enemies in other places in the Old Testament? Maybe when they're told to kill everyone? Man, woman, and child. These are tough passages. But they're only troubling to us because we don't believe what the Bible says about sin. 
We don't believe what God says about the severity and the dreadfulness of sin. We don't agree with God that sin is awful and appalling and inexcusable. We often don't see it like He does. As white-hot rebellion and hatred toward Him. As a wild disfigurement of His pure and beautiful will. We want to soften sin and view it through rose-colored glasses. We diminish its severity and say, it's not, it's not so bad. Let's not overstate it. And then we stumble and, and balk at God when He acts and deals with sin. And we accuse Him sometimes of being too severe. Maybe we even judge the Bible and, and call it antiquated, struggle to believe it. But God means to deal severely with sin because our sin against Him is harsh. It's brutal. It's cruel. And those who live a life of sin with no faith and no repentance will be forever marked as God's enemies. And when it's time, God judges His enemies swiftly and He destroys completely. Do you see it in the book of Revelation? It's inclusive. It's exhaustive. The judgment's all-encompassing. And if you're an unbeliever, this should be a a wake-up call. It should arrest your attention. But for God's church, for those who are in Christ, it's an oasis. It really is. Do you see how comprehensive this will be, brother and sister? Can Can you get your mind around it? No enemies anywhere. No enemies from the land to the islands of the sea. No one anywhere that hates Jesus Christ. No one anywhere that despises and looks down on His church. None that wish harm against the people of God. No enemy prowling around after your soul. No sin to threaten you. No specter of death looming over you. Ah, what a day, brother and sister, that will be. What a day that will be. And thus, it'll most certainly be a day of celebration. I mean, think about it. Think about it for a minute. There's much to celebrate right here today, isn't there, Christian? God has dealt Satan a fatal blow. His head has been crushed. He's been thrown down. And your sins have been forgiven. They've been separated as far from you as the east is from the west. You've been justified, declared righteous by God Himself. And you're now in Christ, clothed with His righteousness. And you've been given a new heart. A new spirit's been placed within you. The Son has set you free. And if you're free, you're free indeed. So sin no longer has dominion over you. You're now a member of the new covenant. God's law is in your mind and it's been written on your heart. The Bible even says you're partakers of the divine nature. You've escaped from the corruption that's in the world. And you're no longer enslaved to the fear of death. You can say, along with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know that to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord because Jesus has won the victory. So there's plenty to celebrate this morning, church, and we should be rejoicing always. Yet, yet, think of what the celebration will be like on that great day when Jesus completely and utterly vanquishes all enemies. Talk about feasting. Talk about joy. Talk about gladness. Let's look again at Revelation 19. Stay there in Revelation with me. Look back at 19 
verses 1 through 9. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the, white, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't think we'll ever really know anything of true feasting until we've enjoyed the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now that's a feast. That right there is a feast. All the saints at the table with the Lord Jesus Christ. Skip down to Revelation 21. Look at verse 1. Hang in there with me. Let these verses minister to your soul. Imagine that day. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give them from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. There's rejoicing. There's gladness. Rejoicing and gladness like we can hardly imagine. No mourning, no crying, no pain, nothing but satisfaction and contentment and joy. The presence of sin, gone. And God's presence, full and unadulterated. Move down to verse 9. Last passage. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, 
And on the, names, on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp Is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There is beauty and safety and comfort to the nth degree. That's eternal welfare for the people of God. That's eternal peace for the people. And church, one day we'll celebrate like that. In Christ, it's all your destiny. There really is a day fast approaching that will be filled with this kind of celebration, this kind of enjoyment. Jesus will have completely won the victory. He will have established your welfare and peace by completely destroying all of God's enemies. And that victory will be yours. You will celebrate. We'll all celebrate it together. Now all this victory and all this celebration is yours only because of Jesus Christ. He alone is the exalted one who is able to establish your eternal welfare and your eternal peace. Throughout this passage in Esther 9 and 10, Mordecai was exalted. In fact, his promotion is what made the Jewish victory possible. But the exaltation of Mordecai is really the exaltation of Jesus Christ. You're meant to look beyond Mordecai and to see the greatness of Jesus. Consider Jesus. He is great in the king's house. He serves God the Father and the Father has been pleased to give him All authority. Daniel 7, speaking of Jesus. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus declared it plainly in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. The Father has given Jesus all authority And on account of His death and resurrection, the fathers installed Him on His throne at His right hand. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. 
having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus died for sinners. He was buried, rose from the dead, and then ascended into heaven where God gave him a coronation that was fitting only for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So Jesus is great in the king's house. He's been given high honor and he's been advanced above all others. And the day will come when every knee will bow in subjection to him. And every mouth, every mouth will declare that he is Lord of all. Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the day is soon coming, friends, when it will be so. A day is coming when indeed every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He'll be the center of everything. Again, remember the words of Revelation 21. I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Its lamp is the Lamb. Imagine that. That's exaltation. The light of the world outshining the sun itself. He'll be the center of the new heaven and the new earth. Everything will orbit around Him. Jesus is great. He is high and lifted up. And one day soon He will powerful, powerfully reign with all things under subjection to Him. Under His feet. The day is coming, friends, when Jesus will receive the glory that's due His name. Don't you long for that day? He'll be fully recognized by all, recognized for who He truly is. And He'll be worshipped forever. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Jesus is exalted. Therefore, He's able to establish your welfare and your peace. And He will one day completely destroy all of God's enemies. And He will finally usher in eternal good and eternal comfort. But until then, what should you be doing? What can you be doing now as you see this victory unfold and you wait for it to be completed? Well, join Him in the fight. Join Him in the fight and triumph in Him. We follow a warrior king who's committed to subduing his enemies. And he's already struck the devil with a head-crushing blow. He's already bound Satan. And now he's marching to sure victory. But the fighting continues. The battle has not yet been completed, has it? So enter the fray. Come on, church. Get in to the fight. Join the fight. Jesus has declared war on the devil. And Jesus is waging war right now against him and all his wicked angels. He has an active campaign, Jesus does, that includes plundering his house, plundering Satan's house, and bringing him down. So it's not time for us to sit idly by and to disregard the call to enlist. It's not a time for neutrality. God's people can't be neutral. Living as a Christian means deployment. It means actively engaging in the battle. 
Brothers and sisters, it is the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar. And it's time to fight. It's time to arm ourselves for battle. So I want to restate Mitch's call to get on your horse and ride. And as you do, grab some armor and a sword. Because you're not just a courier. You are a courier, delivering an edict of good news and great joy. But you're also a warrior, riding into battle. You're one of God's people sent to fight the good fight. Jesus is exalted. The law sentencing us to death has been overturned. The victory is ours. And we have a new edict urging us to defend ourselves. We've gained mastery over our opponents. And we have Jesus leading the way. So let's go. Let's fight together to love one another. Let's fight for holiness. And let's evangelize with zeal. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, what is the nature of this battle? What are we fighting for? What are we fighting against? We know this from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5. through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's the nature of our battle right there. These are helpful verses. Peter, put away your sword. We're not chopping off ears and taking names. This battle is a spiritual battle. And your weapons are spiritual weapons. You're not taking up a literal sword. You're wielding the gospel. And the gospel contains divine power to destroy strongholds. In fact, elsewhere, Paul has said that it's the gospel that contains the power of God for salvation. And you can battle like this on an airplane, at a friend's house, or while walking with a neighbor. You can fight this fight while teaching homeschool or taking your teenager out to dinner or visiting an unbelieving relative. You can also battle like this when you're confronting a brother about sin or helping a sister to persevere in faithfulness to the gospel. When we proclaim Christ, when we preach the gospel, we're battling to destroy strongholds. We are destroying anti-gospel arguments and we're confronting prideful opinions that are raised up against the knowledge of God. That's what we're doing. And this is a battle that is raging over the minds and hearts and souls of people all around you. Satan and his angels are raging against the church, and they would love to take some of us down. And they would happily go on deceiving the lost that they might remain dead in their trespasses and sins. But we have the gospel, and we're on march to victory. And that victory march includes the opportunity to plunder the enemy's goods. Satan is bound, which means we have the ability to plunder his house. So captive souls stand ready to be released. Sinners in the clutches of the evil one can be set free. The gospel is the means, and now is the time. And while this day of battle rages, Jesus is on mission to build his church. And get this, he demonstrates his power over the enemy by releasing sinners from his grip all the time. 
Part of how he's overcoming the enemy right now is that he's saving people for himself. Satan's no longer able to deceive the nations, and Jesus Christ is winning the nations to himself. And he's doing it through our witness. We are the ones making disciples of all nations. You're a witness, which means you've been deployed into his army. You are now on mission to extract God's elect from among enemy ranks. That's what you're called to do. You preach the gospel, you proclaim Christ, and the elect respond. The sheep hear his voice, and the enemy can do nothing about it. He's powerless to stop it. In fact, there may be some here this morning who came in here unbelieving. Every Sunday we have unbelievers here who don't know Christ. And if that's you, I want to say to you, why remain a captive? Why continue to do the enemy's bidding? You're no more neutral than anyone else in this room. You're a slave. You're a slave to sin, a slave to impurity, apart from Christ, a slave to lawlessness. You're not a slave of God, and that leaves you firmly in the grip of the evil one. You end up being a pawn in Satan's fight. You're in enemy hands. But the good news this morning is that Jesus Christ is rescuing sinners just like you as he marches to victory. He is plundering Satan's house, which means that he's freeing captives just like you. And I'm inviting you to come to him for deliverance. Come out of enemy territory. Come out of a place of slavery and defeat and death. Come away from your sin and your guilt and your shame and come to Christ, the high and exalted one, the one who can give you a triumphant victory, an eternal celebration. He died on the cross for sinners. That's where he crushed the serpent's head. And all you need to do is come to him by faith. So I say to you what Jesus said to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. Stop being unbelieving and believe. Maybe this morning Jesus is extricating you from enemy possession. Maybe he's saving you and then enlisting you in his service. This is still a day of reversals. And Jesus Christ can change you. He can bring you from death to life. He can set you free from slavery. He can recreate you as one of his people. And he can give you hope. Jesus is indeed winning the victory. It's not a day of defeat and humiliation. No, it's a day of victory and exaltation. Jesus has inaugurated that great day, but it is not yet complete. We're still expected to battle, aren't we? There is a war we must fight. We need to labor in evangelism. We must work to preach the gospel and to preach it faithfully. It's not a time for ease or of comfort. It's a time of engagement. It's time to put on the whole armor of God. It's time to take out the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and to boldly proclaim the mystery of the Gospel. It's a time to pray and expect God to act in power and might. So have optimism, church, as you do evangelism. Have optimism. Be confident when you see opportunities to proclaim Christ. Don't grow weary for praying for the lost. Persevere for the sake of God's elect. The victory is yours. The celebration is not that far off. Jesus is exalted as Lord. 
and he's building his church. So let's join him. Let's do our part. Turn to me to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this word to us this morning from Esther. What a great book. Thank you for giving us this word. And I pray that you would motivate us to take action. To work with you as you build your church. And to do it with hearts that are, that are excited, that are confident, that are motivated. Not, not driven by guilt, but driven by a vision of what you're doing and what you will do one day. And we're excited, so excited to be a part of what you are doing. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for calling us into service to Christ. Help us to be faithful as a church as we seek to follow him all our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.